morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. This morning we continue our journey through the Torah, through the five books of Moses, and we are in the book of Genesis. We are reading that weekly section of the book of Genesis known as Chaye Sarah, which means the life of Sarah. It begins in uh, Bereshit in Genesis 23.1 and continues through the middle of chapter 25. Let me offer you, the listeners, a synopsis of our Torah portion of our weekly reading and then introduce my guest who will help us uh, dig a little bit deeper into the Torah portion. As I've suggested, the name of the portion is Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, but interestingly enough, begins with the death of Sarah, and we are told that she is 127 years old, and she is buried in what is called the Machpelah Cave in the city of Hebron. And the Torah portion uh, tells us that Abraham purchases from Ephron the Hittite this land for 400 shekels of silver. It's a rather lengthy discussion of the purchase. Um, The Torah portion then changes from the death of Sarah and introduces us to the narrative in which Abraham will send his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Isaac, the uh, descendant of Abraham who will inherit the the covenant. So Abraham's servant Eliezer is sent laden with gifts to Haran, the original land of Abraham, to find a wife for Isaac. At the village well, Eliezer asks the God of Abraham for a sign uh, as to who will be a fitting wife. When the maidens come to the well, he will ask for some water to drink. The women who will offer to give his camels to drink as well shall be the one destined to be Isaac's wife. Rebekah, the daughter of Abraham's nephew, Bituel, appears at the well and passes this test. Eliezer is invited to the home where he repeats the story of the day's events. Uh, Rebecca returns with Eliezer to the land of Canaan, where they will encounter Isaac walking through the field in the evening, which is understood by Jewish tradition to mean that he was praying. And Isaac marries Rebecca, loves her according to the text, and is comforted over the loss of his mother, uh, Sarah, which uh, brings full circle the beginning of the story and this narrative. The narrative again shifts, and we're told that Abraham takes a new wife, Keturah, which many biblical scholars take to be Hagar, the handmaiden of his wife, Sarah. And he fathers six additional sons, but Isaac is designated as his only heir. While the Torah portion began telling us of the death of Sarah at 127, now the Torah portion ends by telling us that Abraham dies at the age of 175 and is buried beside his wife, Sarah, and the funeral is... uh, 
a moment in which Isaac and Ishmael, brothers, are reunited after being separated in a rather lengthy and well-known narrative. A Torah portion just chock full of interesting stories and narratives. And uh, my guest this morning is Rabbi Joshua Goldstein, a spiritual leader of the High Center in New Jersey. Rabbi Goldstein is Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Shari Shalom in Springfield, New Jersey, where he served as spiritual leader for nearly 30 years. He has also served as rabbinic leader of Sharei Hayam in Manawakan, New Jersey. For most of his rabbinic life, he has served in the state of New Jersey. He is an active uh, member of local and national organizations, including the Rabbinic Cabinet of the Association of Reformed Zionists of America, the Rabbinic Advisory Committee of Camp Harlan, and the Board of Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. He received an undergraduate degree from Temple University in Philadelphia and his uh, rabbinic degree from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. It's a pleasure to once again welcome Rabbi Joshua Goldstein to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Hi, Rabbi Garden. Hi, everybody out there. It is my pleasure and honor to be with you. Rabbi Garden and I go back a long time. We're, the, we're classmates meeting for the first time in Jerusalem in 1970. So we've had a long history. It's been a wonderful friendship for me. And uh, I, I think it's probably about the fourth or fifth or maybe more than that time that I've been on the program. Thank you so much for asking. Well, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you, uh, not only deepening our friendships, but studying Torah. Um, and while it would be fun to talk about college basketball, one of your great loves, um, we will talk about uh, the Torah portion online. So as I suggested in the introduction, there are many places for us to begin our conversation, but let's begin where the Torah portion begins, and that is telling us about the death of Sarah and giving us some indication about what Jewish tradition will say regarding the treatment of the dead and our response to the death of a loved one. How do you interpret this short but meaningful phrase? It is a meaningful phrase. And Steve, you, you summed up the portion really well. In this case, so the Torah says, Sarah died at the age of Mea Shanim, the Esrim Shana, the Sheva Shanim. The translation literally is 100 years and 20 years and seven years. So naturally, the commentators ask, why is it so lengthy? Why not just say 127 years instead of you know, dividing it up that way? And the conventional answer is that it's to indicate that Sarah lived a nice, full, fulfilled life. Um, I, I mentioned this only because when I study the Torah, um, I try to look for the big picture. I'm not so immersed in finding interpretations. So you asked, Steve, about uh, the dynamics of uh, Abraham's response to Sarah's loss. And my reading is that, that Abraham begins a tradition which says, of course, we mourn someone that we loved and cared for, and we know how challenging that can be. 
but in Abraham's case, he also puts his head down and says, I know what I have to do. I have to find a proper burial spot for Sarah. Um, that's no small thing. You know, a lot of people put that, that decision off for a long, long time. But um, until it's, you know, they're under the gun to, to, do the, to, to make that decision. So Abraham spends time looking for the proper burial spot. It turns out to be, as you said, Marat HaMachpelah, the cave of Machpelah in the city of Hebron, now Judea, Samaria, West Bank of Israel. And, um, and, and, and by responding that way, he does show honor to his wife. It's not like, well, whatever is convenient, I will, I will find as a final resting place for my wife. But what is the, the really proper place? And for a lot of different reasons, probably, Hebron and the cave of Machpelah resonates with them. So that's the one thing that I take away from this. The, the care that is taken in finding a proper burial spot for Sarah. So um, in the text, we don't have a lot of uh, explanation of why Hebron is such a special place. Uh, as some of our listeners will know, Hebron becomes the burial site uh, not only of Sarah, uh, but of others of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Uh, and becomes a uh, biblical site of importance to the Jewish people. Uh, and um, I'm wondering if you want to share with our listeners why we consistently speak about the cave of Machpelah, as opposed to today, the tradition of burying people in the ground? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. There is, halakhically speaking by Jewish law, permission to actually bury above ground in a, in a designated kind of way. Um, so, and, and that tradition really begins, I would imagine, with Abraham's decision to bury his wife Sarah there. Why Hebron? Well, Abraham was the first Jew, so he doesn't have a lot of a tradition to go by in terms of Hebron, but because that's where she's buried, and then ultimately Abraham too, Hebron has taken on a uh, larger-than-life position in, in the Jewish experience. Every time I go to Israel, I really make a point of actually visiting Hebron because that establishes our historical link to to that part of the world, and it's it's the uh, some would say the the second most uh, sacred city in Judaism, next to Jerusalem. So I really make a point of going there and really reflecting on Jewish history and my own ancestry. And I think that's probably the dynamic of many Jews as well. Well, it's certainly one of the uh, oldest cities mentioned in the Torah. I mean, Jerusalem does not become uh, part and parcel of the Jewish history until uh, the story of David, long after the Torah's chronology. Um, and uh, Hebron certainly mentioned so early in Genesis gives a sense of the unique nature of that locale. Um, I was struck by the fact that um, rather than focusing, as many people do, on the uh, sale of the land, 
and the negotiation between Ephron, the Hittite, and Abraham, you quite wonderfully focused on the notion that Abraham felt the obligation to treat the burial of his wife with great respect um, and to establish a place um, which today we would think of as cemeteries where one would continually know uh, where to visit the uh, deceased and to pay respects. And it's certainly the first time in Torah that we have a, a tradition enunciated that will become part and parcel of Western culture. And, and especially of, 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 of Jewish tradition, too. Uh, so, you know, I think, Rabbi Garden, a lot about my own ancestry. I know that so many of our people coming from who came from Eastern Europe, maybe the Mizrahi, maybe the ones who came from the Mediterranean area, too. One of the last things they did before leaving that 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 area, and I'm thinking of here of Eastern Europe, um, would be that they, if they had, if, if they had access to a camera, this is talking really about 1930, 1920 uh, period of time for Jews, they would go to the cemetery and family would take a picture of themselves next to the grave site of a loved one who had died. And that would be considered a very cherished memory for them. I think it it all suggests that cemeteries are sacred places. And in my case, and it doesn't necessarily have to be Hebron. In my place, when I go to Beth Israel Cemetery in in central New Jersey, uh, I do that periodically. I make a point over the high holy days, as is sometimes traditional, to visit my parents' graves. And there I find it to be very therapeutic just to reflect on my own history, my journey, the gratitude to my parents, and to maybe sometimes even open up and, and talk a little bit, as crazy as that may sound to some people. So Abraham kind of establishes that tradition, doesn't he? Yes. You know, this notion of kavod hametim, the honoring of the um, deceased, the dead, uh, becomes so significant in Jewish uh, ritual behavior, the way we prepare the body for burial, um, the prayers that are offered, the notion of shmirah, that somebody should sit with the body until burial, uh, the fact that there is a funeral in which the liturgy is minimal, but the praise, the hesped, the eulogy is maximal is um, an interesting dynamic because in other traditions, uh, theology is more important than praise for the deceased. But in our tradition, kavod mate, the honor of the dead, takes unbelievable precedent over any theology, regardless of the circumstances of the death. Uh, when young people die or when there's a sadness um, about death, a sadness always occurs. But when it's an unexpected death, you would think that a religious ceremony would want to focus on helping the mourners deal with it theologically. But in fact, our tradition says that we're going to leave that for other circumstances and really focus on who this person was. Uh, And you're right to say that Abraham and how he deals 
with uh, Sarah's death uh, begins this long tradition. And as I indicated, um, the fact that the Torah portion ends with the death of Abraham and the two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, come back together, um, having been separated in a narrative that is not very flattering to anybody. Uh, It's not flattering to Sarah. It's not flattering to Isaac. It's not flattering to God in many ways. But they come together as if to reinforce your notion that how we respond to the dead, how we bury them, is uh, an important statement of religious life. Uh, I want to thank you for explicating that and sharing it. And I want to take you back to something else that you said with regard to uh, Hebron. Um, You indicated that Hebron stands out for you as a statement of the historical connection to the land. And I'm wondering if you might want to expand upon that a bit and talk about the meaning of the land as it relates to this biblical epic. Yeah. I, Steve, I read these portions as almost the first uh, statements of Zionism uh, in Judaism, that we do have a claim to the land. Now, I'm not going to get too political, but I will say, um, you know, you and I are speaking with our audience at a very, very challenging time for the Jewish people. And, um, and Hebron as contested as it is, is part of that dynamic. Uh, so many of us are feeling heartbroken about what, what has happened, and that includes not just Jews, but non-Jews as well. So the land is integral, I think, to uh, our Judaism. We think that um, we have a Jewish homeland, and the story of that homeland has gone through ups and downs and miracles, um, but I, I like when I'm in Israel to, when I get off the plane as, as self-consciously as I might, I get on all fours, I kiss the ground. I make a point of going to Hebron. I make a point of going to the Kotel. It does not deter me as much as I'd like to see it as an egalitarian place. It doesn't deter me from going there and recognizing it as a central place because it's our Jewish homeland. And that's been that. That seems to be reinforced with with Chaye Sarah with the Torah portion that we're reading this week. You know, um, we are recording on the uh, anniversary of Kristallnacht, uh, uh, the seventy uh, five years eighty eighty fourth anniversary of the. Evening of the Broken Glass, in which, under the instructions of the uh, Nazi regime in Germany, synagogues and Jewish stores were uh, broken, the breaking of the glass. Uh, uh, Some Jews were murdered, some Jews were injured, some were sent to concentration camps, not quite uh, the camps of destruction, but concentration camps. And Many have thought that had there been an opportunity for there to be a land um, where Jews could actualize their sense of religious nationalism, uh, this might not have happened. But we always have to keep these pieces of historical 
significance in our mind as we talk about current events and as we talk about the Torah, in which right. the Torah speaks that having a piece of land that you can call your own is significant for identity and for nation building. Um, and so it's hard to ignore uh, a Torah portion like this because there will be other Torah portions which are not so um, devoted to the notion of land as important component of the covenant. Right. Uh, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're not going to be speaking about uh, the land of Israel. So thank you for raising that and talking about it so sensitively. Uh, so we've looked at Kavod HaMetim, the honoring of the uh, deceased, and we've looked at how this Torah portion uh, speaks so uh, powerfully about um, land and the association of land with identity and with uh, meaning to the people of Israel, which then morphs um, into liturgical Zionism and eventually into uh, political Zionism. Is there anything else in this Torah portion that jumps out at you that we want to unpack for our listeners? Yeah, I'll, I'll quickly go back to your uh, wonderful allusion to Kristallnacht that we're marking the anniversary. Is it today, actually, that we... I think it is actually today as we record this. Right. I'll always think of a former Rosh Yeshiva, former head of our rabbinical seminary, Alfred Gottschalk, talking about when he was a child in Germany. And he must have been about five or six years old at the time of Kristallnacht. But he remembers he survived that with his grandfather. And the next day, his grandfather took him by the hand and they went to a brook of water and they tried to retrieve some of the torn or burned parchments of a Torah scroll. And that was such an important uh, dynamic for Alfred Gottschalk uh, to do. It was a metaphor for retrieving our heritage, for retrieving our, our values. So I want to quickly mention that very, very quickly, that story that I remember hearing from Alfred Gottschalk. A great story. Yeah. I mean, it, it both personalizes the historical event, but reminds us of why these uh, historical events about the Jewish people, even though we are not involved, and maybe our ancestors, our own families are not, but they become uh, memorials uh, ingrained in our very DNA as members of the Jewish covenantal people. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and the other thing that jumps out, I guess, from this Torah portion, Steve, is um, that Abraham also takes great care in trying to find a, a spouse for his son, Isaac. And he really wants the, the person who is to be his spouse to come from a, um, a, a group of people that he feels will, will help in carrying on whatever traditions they may have had. A lot of people say this is an argument for in marriage in Judaism. Um, that we should be emphasizing Jewish-Jewish marriages. And then there are so many others um, among them, uh, and most Reform rabbis like us would say, we live in a world, especially in America, where there is a lot of interfaith marriage. We want to make some sort of uh, 
find a way to make that a strength of our people if we can. So um, as opposed to that part of the portion where some people see it as an argument against interfaith marriage, I think it just simply provokes us to think a lot about it, ponder it, and to recognize that that decision has a lot to do with whether or not we can carry on our traditions or not. But in general, this is a fascinating Torah portion, and um, and it's one that is well worth our time to look at it over and over again every year. People say, why? The Torah portion doesn't change. Yeah, but we change. And how we change and how we look at the Torah portion is re- really revealing about our own values. So um, yeah, I'm so glad we've had this chance, Steve, to, to talk about the portion. Well, I think you've indicated two important things for our listeners to remember. One is um, you remind our listeners that we read the Torah portion on a yearly cycle and that each year we will read Chaye Sarah and the words of the Torah won't change, but we will change. And at each stage in our life, we will read the words of Torah uh, so differently. Uh, perhaps if we were younger, uh, Kavod HaMetim would be less interesting to us or mm-hmm. less significant. But as we are of the stage and age where uh, death is closer than birth, this becomes a significant issue. It, perhaps if we had read this uh, last April when we were celebrating the 75th anniversary of the state of Israel and not in the middle of a war, the notion of land would have been differently understood by us. And of course, lastly, since our children are married and have their own children, we look not at the question of um, in marriage or out marriage, but we read the Torah, which says, uh, Abraham sends his servant Eliezer back to the land that he came from. What does that mean? Since nobody back there was covenantal, it wasn't about marrying, quote, somebody who was Jewish. It was about finding somebody who might have shared values, who might have shared history, who might have a shared worldview, uh, which is very different than how we um, discuss uh, marriage from a religious perspective. It's much more in keeping with the notion of ethnic uh, identity. Uh, and so we then read this, were we younger, we might read it one way, but now we read it as um, uh, grandparents. And we uh, ask ourselves, what is the Torah's message about who we marry? My guest this morning, who has so eloquently led us in a discussion and insights into the Torah portion has been Rabbi Joshua Goldstein of uh, New Jersey, and I thank him for sharing his wisdom with us. You can hear a broadcast of our conversation on CHRI 99.1 FM, or you can hear it as a podcast found on the chri.ca website, or you can download it from iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Thank you for listening this morning. Thank you for sharing with us this morning words of Torah. Shalom and have a good day. Shalom.